Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Let's Discuss Sports podcast. Good morning, good evening or good afternoon depending on whichever part of the world you are. The transfer deadline day was closed around midnight yesterday and we have got Dr. Dan Plumley from Sheffield Hallam University to discuss certain aspects of the transfer deadline day and sports finance with us. Hello Dan, how are you? Hello Safak, good thank you. So Dan, the first question for you is like we have seen multiple transfers and some of the deals going through around 11 pm after last night such as Michibachwai to Chelsea so Michibachwai from Chelsea to Crystal Palace on loan and Yasinard from PSG to Bordeaux so which clubs according to you have got the best deals across the two transfer windows from the big five clubs Yes, yeah, it's a really interesting question to start. I think if if you mentioned two transfer windows, so I think what we're now seeing generally across the board is a lot of clubs doing more business in the summer, a lot of clubs taking a lot more time um to invest in their squad and the decisions that they make. So this transfer window has been relatively quiet compared to others. If you look back to the summer and you look at, you know, that where the leagues are at the minute, you look at somebody like Uh, Alisson to Liverpool and the difference he's made to their defense and where they are in at the top of the league at the minute. Uh, you've obviously got the big ones of of Ronaldo to Juventus which uh, at the time was one of the the biggest transfers of the summer. Um in terms of the winter window it, as I say it's been relatively quiet. I think Crystal Palace you you mentioned that's why there as as an example. I I think Crystal Palace have got a really good deal there on deadline day um in terms of they need a bit of um extra support and pace up front and he gives them that he's proven in the premier league to a certain degree uh, so that would be a particular one that you're looking at thinking that's potentially a good piece of business late in the day but very quiet overall yesterday and and we kind of expected that because clubs are doing much more of their business up front and in the summer nowadays i mean but if you still look at the transfer spendings it was i guess over 500 million was spent by the time the transfer deadline closed yesterday but and it is not a small sum of money No, it's still not a small sum of money. So if you look at the totals, yeah, um the Premier League spent 180 million in the in the January transfer window, slightly ahead of Serie A, which was around 140 million, uh, and and clubs doing business in France and Germany uh, as well. So uh, yeah, across the big five, still not an insignificant amount of money, but if you contrast that to the summer windows, uh, you know, over 1.2 billion spent in the Premier League, uh, totals getting higher and higher across the big five. So Yeah, that kind of suggests that clubs are looking at this more long term nowadays and are doing much more of the business up front and in the summer when they've got more time to plan uh, and get the squad settled. So like across the two transfers window, who is the bargain buy? I suppose it depends on how you perceive bargain. Um I'm sure Juventus will be looking at Ronaldo and thinking for 100 million euros they might have got a bargain because of the the prowess that he brings on the pitch and off the pitch. I think in terms of value it's really difficult as I say you know Chelsea both Chelsea and Liverpool spent big on goalkeepers that's perceived to be you know a really high fee for goalkeepers but they're the ones that can get you clean sheets and and often um you know turn draws or wit or into into wins um or losses into wins in that respect so yeah there there has been you know one or two signings that you could pick I think you know mention Liverpool again somebody like Shakira for a relatively low fee um but just a different dynamic to that squad and okay never going to be a, a a person that plays 90 minutes week in week out but will make an impact so you're looking at those kind of uh, players that that can make an impact that you perceive to have got some value out of and i think 
again, that's the way the market's gone. Nowadays, we're talking sometimes £30 million can be a punt and you're not quite sure how that's going to work out. So if you can find a bit of value where where you can, um, that's great. But it is tough in today's market. I mean, like if you look at the small clubs in the Premier League, I shouldn't say them small because it is a disrespect to them. Like in terms of financial prowess, obviously they are smaller than the big five. I will not include Tottenham because they don't spend anything. So clubs like Bournemouth, they have ripped Chelsea apart last week. And if you see or have a look at their squad, they have like got the squad together with relatively small budget. So do you think like the smaller clubs have better scouting network than the bigger clubs? I think probably the the smaller clubs are just operating under different business models. We know that staying in the Premier League or promotion to it is worth, you know, 100 million, 120 million pounds minimum. So that the the importance of staying in that league is is paramount to those clubs. Um and you just tend to find different business operating models whereby they'll often look for um more perceived value in the market perhaps further down the league. You mentioned Bournemouth there. You know, Bournemouth spent thirty-one million pounds on two English youngsters in this window. Um, Solanke cost nineteen million. Chris Meppen from um, from the Championship at Brentford cost twelve million, and that fits with their model. It's buying young talent, what they perceive to be young English talent, uh, and, and building the team that way. Uh, the problem is, young English talent still costs quite a lot nowadays, and that's the market that we're in. So. Yeah, it's just an operating model that that's different between the big um, five or the big six and and the rest because there's such a financial gap between those six and the rest of the league. Just the way it is, really, with those clubs consistently qualifying for UEFA competitions, Champions League, getting the extra revenues, um, driving up commercial deals off the back of that, and then it's a real struggle for those other clubs to compete in the Premier League financially at the minute. I mean, when the next transfer window opens now, like it started this year as well in the English Premier League, we saw that the transfer window closes three weeks earlier than France, Germany and Spain. Only Italy closes on the 18th of August, if I'm not wrong. So what do you think will be the implications on English Premier League clubs? Yeah, it's it's a tricky one. I, I, I personally don't see a, re- a need for it to be different dates across different windows I think that creates a little bit of uncertainty um, sometimes a little bit of panic you know if you look at uh, once the Premier League window shuts for example and then some are still open or some shut earlier you have this kind of uh, real uncertainty and if a, if a player wants to move or a club wants to sell a player or a club wants to buy a player that's often not just dependent on that club it's dependent on the other club getting a replacement in if their window shut they can't get a replacement, so a deal will break down. And we've seen some of that in January as well. Uh, Idrissa Gay last night was was a prime example. Um, Everton rejected a late bid, primarily because Everton didn't have time to bring a replacement in. Uh, and you're not going to sell a player if you think that you need still need that player and you can't get a, an adequate replacement. So having different dates in terms of where European window shuts obviously brings more uncertainty to that as well. And as you know, United Kingdom is leaving the European Union on the 31st of March 2019. So when we wake up on the 1st of April, we, this country is no longer in the European Union. So what will we, what will be the impact of Brexit on English football financially? Yeah, 
a tough one. We still don't know. I suppose what in terms of what we're talking about with with transfers and and player movement, some of the things that might change. So, you know, irrespective of what happens with with Brexit, and we still don't know what the country is going, how the country is going to leave, let alone how it affects the football market. But most of the, the you know the bigger European players would still qualify for work permits under the current um, regulations that we're talking about. However, what it might do is. Um, allow more global access to players, whereby some of those restrictions have um, been in place against, you know, buying players from further afield, such as South America or, or into Asia, etc. So it might bring more opportunities for, for football players' movement. We still don't know. It might restrict it. it. It's really uncertain at the minute. And and that could have played some part in, in a quieter transfer window. We don't know for definite, but clubs might be looking at that thinking, OK, we need to see where this is going first before we perhaps spend a considerable amount of money on a player. So, yeah, real times of uncertainty in terms of Brexit. And, and the short answer is we we still don't really know what's going to happen yet at the end of March. I mean, do you think the English Premier League, they should have, you can say, a cap on the number of home players in the starting eleven, like players from England, Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales, in the starting eleven, if Brexit happens and... You can say the freedom of movement of players is more restricted in terms of getting work permits because, as we see, in Chelsea, I guess, Ross Barkley is the only English player in the starting eleven. I can't find many names in Manchester City as well. Yeah, it, it's it's a question that's been, been asked a lot of times and I think that's that's one of the kind of things that, that has been suggested post-Brexit is a, a quota on homegrown players. We've seen it happen at a squad level. Uh, in terms of homegrown players, but there's a, a, a there's an add-on to that that talks about homegrown talent, which doesn't necessarily have to be English players. It can be someone that's been in your academy system for a while from a different country. So it, there has been suggestions. I, I just kind of wonder sceptically whether or not that would ever work in practice. Can Has the Premier League now become too powerful and the players become too powerful in that environment, whereby it would be really tough to force that regulation through? And if you look at the the composition of squads. Uh, and again, going back to the transfers, um, the EPL is still the highest importer of overseas talent. If you look at 2018-19, the, the two windows across the season, 72% of players bought came from overseas. So it's still a huge market. So I think we're some way away from potentially caps on number of English players in the starting eleven. We might see it more at a squad level uh, and trying to redress that balance a little bit. The Deloitte Football Money League survey, it was released last week on, yeah. if I'm not wrong, on Wednesday, yeah. last Wednesday. And we saw Manchester United lose their top position. So do you think it is because of the weakening pound? Because pound was 1.5 euros before Brexit, deal was announced and it it is now 1.13 after the Brexit was like Theresa May announced that we are going out of European Union either deal or no deal. So do you think it is because of the weakening pound or a culmination of the former with not so good on-field performances under Jose Mourinho? It's more the, the latter, to be honest. I think the the weakening pound is is important for the wider market. But if you look at what Deloitte do with that money league, they compare 
the values in in euros and in pounds so there is a kind of roundabout benchmark that we can look at I think it's your final point if you look at Manchester United what we know is that sporting performance and financial performance are definitely linked and what you do on the pitch will affect financial performance so partly Manchester United's fall from the top of that money league was around um competing in the Europa League versus the Champions League okay they you know they got to the final and won it that season but the distributions of of money across those two competitions are uh, not comparable so you would still get more money for competing in the Champions League another thing that we've seen is is Real Madrid and Barcelona Real Madrid obviously won the Champions League in that year so would receive more prize money and they've also been able to both sign improved commercial deals um with shirt sponsors Barcelona with uh, their new shirt sponsorship deal. So what we're seeing in that Deloitte Money League more than anything is that it's the commercial deals of the clubs linked to sporting performance as well that is driving uh, that particular table and rankings. And I think you know we Manchester United might get back to the top of that in a couple of years, but I would suggest that Real Madrid and Barcelona will be uh, the top two for the next couple of years in that football money league. And I was also having a look at the top 30 clubs in the Football Money League and 13 out of the 30 clubs are from English Premier League and there are clubs like Brighton, Newcastle. Why do you think like this happens? One word really, it's broadcasting. It's the TV money that is paid to Premier League clubs that is still considerably higher than distributions in uh, and fi- and f- broadcasting rights fees in the Bundesliga, in Serie A, in Ligue 1 um, and in in Spain in La Liga. So it, it's the broadcasting and the amount of broadcasting money that clubs earn in the Premier League that is putting those clubs into more English clubs into the top 20 and into the top 30 of that money league. Well, let us have a talk about the youth players of England do you think like they are losing confidence in their mother clubs because most of the players now want the opportunity we saw Jadon Sancho move to Borussia Dortmund for more first team football why can't they wait in their mother clubs and like just go out on loan come back get the opportunity yeah it's an interesting one and I suppose it links back to the previous conversation we were having about youth players in general and squad sizes in the Premier League. I think if you take the example again, um, for this window, we've seen two more English youngsters move to Germany. I think Reese Oxford and Smith Rowe from Arsenal have gone to German clubs. Uh, the, the Jordan Sancho effect, as, as it's being known, has, has had some impact on that. So we've seen uh, him come on leaps and bounds from a, a player development perspective since he's been given the opportunity at Dortmund. So I think other youngsters are are looking at that. I know there's been the saga around uh, hudson Adoy and Bayern Munich and that might rematerialise in the summer. Whether or not they're losing confidence in their mother clubs is, is one thing. I think players are just looking at that and are being more open to you know, branching out into different countries nowadays. It's something that historically English players haven't done and there's been a kind of fear factor of going abroad. There's not been many, if you look back over the course of the last 20, 30 years. I remember Gary Lineker as the last one. Yeah, you know, we've had but one or two others, but they've been more high profile. So, you know, Steve McManaman, Michael Owen have played in Real Madrid um, in the past. So you have these kind of higher profile examples, but we're seeing now a lot of youngsters moving to, to the continent, especially in Germany, where they're perceived to be given more opportunities and and I think as I say you know to to kind of summarize that it's 
the squad sizes in the Premier League are big. Premier League clubs, particularly in the big six, are buying uh, lots of talent into their academies from overseas as well. So if you're an English player coming through that setup, it just becomes more difficult to, to break through. So if the opportunity is there to go and play in what is still a very good league, the Bundesliga is, is a great league and, and great for younger players to develop, then we are seeing some of those take those opportunities as well. And referring to Callum Hudson odoi we have recently seen Chelsea, like on the very first day of the winter transfer window, spending 58 million British pounds on Christian Pulisic. Yeah. who is two years older than Hudson odoi Yeah. Plays in the same position. Yeah. So was it right for Chelsea to actually invest on Christian Pulisic when you have got Callum Hudson odoi who is a better player because he has won the World Cup and he is good because if you see his performances in the World Cup, he is definitely better than Pulisic and he can score goals, which I'm not so sure about Pulisic because he hasn't done it consistently this season and with the arrival of Jadon Sancho in Dortmund, his chances have been limited. Yeah. So, what do you think? Is it right for Chelsea to actually buy Pulisic? Yeah, I think they've loaned him straight back as well, haven't yeah. they? So, again, that is that is a summer a summer purchase, essentially. Chelsea are getting in, in early for, for Pulisic, but have loaned him back. So, that's one for the future, which one for the summer. Um, in the short term and then it'll be obviously one for the future in terms of his age I think again it's really interesting to talk about these players in in comparison you know at the minute hudson Adoy is, is has been really good when he's come into that Chelsea team uh, and he's making an impact he obviously knows the club he knows the Premier League to a certain degree he's won the World Cup at youth level with England so yeah Pulisic is, is still a little bit of a gamble and an unknown albeit a great talent and and you know you just think sometimes it's it depends on on a lot of factors is it the is it the the advice of the people that are scouting these players is it the manager that's having an impact and thinking he wants that player for the future is it the owners or the directors or is it you know in time is Pulisic going to be a world-class player and if that turns out to be the case in, in 10 years' time and we look back on his career, we'll turn around and say £58 million was was a bargain. We just don't know yet. And especially when you've got the situation with hudson Adoy and a young talent there that the fans are really proud of and are really keen to see develop, you do get this kind of conflict of, of should we have done that? Should we have, have made that signing? They've got the money to do it, no doubt about that. Uh, you know, and they've also signed Higuain on loan to bolster their attack. Morata's gone out to, to Atletico Madrid. That's not really worked out. I'm led to believe I think they've got the option to buy Higuain in the summer for around £30 million. Uh, And a different player there at the end of his... Coming towards the peak or the end of his career, if you like. Um, but proven goal scorer in Europe. And it's really interesting to see that kind of dynamic of buying a youngster at 20, loaning him back out, one for the future, versus getting Higuain in who is definitely the manager's choice because he had him at Napoli. And we need some goals now because our current strikers are not pulling their weight. Do you think like the Pulisic deal was actually done with the potential of Eden Hazard moving to Real Madrid in the summer? Or is it just a financial gimmick to raise profile in the US? It's always one of those, isn't it? You're never quite sure. Are they, are they resigned to losing Hazard at some point? I think the noises from Hazard and the club would suggest yes. I think at some point... Uh, Edin Hazard is wants to go to Real Madrid. I don't think he, he's not come out and denied that. The club are saying if it's right for him, we would let him go. 
So, so when and if that deal um, takes place, it might be that their Chelsea are looking at, you know, maybe one for the long term with Pulisic, like Hazard. Hazard came to Chelsea seven, eight years ago now when he was relatively like just young. after Chelsea won the Champions League. Yeah, around the same age as Pulisic. So, so again, you know, compare the the figures if we talk hypothetically. Let's say Hazard goes to Real Madrid for two hundred million, if that's the fee that's being talked about, and. You know, on the the flip side of that, you've you've invested fifty eight million in Pulisic, who might be in time as good as Eden Hazard, maybe maybe not, but it might be a, a good financial move in time for Chelsea. We just don't know yet, but they must be looking at it, thinking we might be resigned to losing Hazard at some point. Now let's have a chat about Tottenham Hotspur's transfer policy. I mean, like they had multiple injuries. Harry Kane is injured. Delhi Ali is injured. They are short on first team players. Like potentially, Hummingson is back now, but he was away on Asia Asian Cup. And Spurs are out of both the dom- domestic competitions, like in a matter of four days. So, do you think like they are actually funding their stadium with their transfer budget, and is it right for them to do so? Yeah, Spurs are a really interesting one. I think you know if you. They've spent nothing again in the summer, nothing in, in January. You mentioned the injuries and the the perceived um, potential lack of depth in that squad if they, if they get injuries, especially to, to players that they rely on, such as Harry Kane. I think what they are doing and what they always have done, again, this goes back to the, the wider thing about ownership motives and, and the structure and business models of the club. Spurs have always been a club that have got the most out of the resources that they've got. Daniel Levy, um, while ever he's been in charge, has, has always said that he wouldn't pay what he perceives to be over the odds for players. He won't be held to ransom. Uh, so that's his prerogative and the, the club, he's taken the club in that direction. They are very much about long-term growth with the new stadium and the potential that that brings. But that long-term growth is also dependent on consistent qualification for the Champions League. Uh, that is obviously great, but the fans also want trophies. And going out of those two domestic trophies over the last week or so won't have been um, particularly great for the fans, obviously. But they are very much about the long term. And if the if the fans can buy into that, then I, I think there is real potential at Tottenham Hotspur. The manager is is good and gets the most out of his players. But you know you're quite right to make that point. If we're talking about short term and and them finishing in the top four, did they need a a potential replacement for Harry Kane, Dele Alli? The flip side of that is, and, and I'm led to believe that, that Batshuayi, we talked about Batshuayi earlier, I'm led to believe that he was offered to Tottenham. Um, I think the loan deal was Chelsea wanted around £8 million if it was a loan deal. They wanted around £35 million if it was a permanent transfer. Uh, there's a couple of things in that. You know, Are Tottenham going to pay £35 million for someone that will be second string to Harry Kane when he's, when he's back? Is that good value? Um, does it become a desperation buy? It, we're also led to believe that when that deal went through at Palace, it was around two million for the loan fee. So there's there's a bit of politics there in terms of Chelsea trying to squeeze Tottenham for more money because they know that they've got an injury situation. Um, and again, are you are you prepared to be held to ransom a little bit by the clubs in that respect? So there's always that side of it to consider. I I think it's strange that Tottenham have not invested at all over the course of the last two windows. Um, but I think that's more down to the business model of and the they're club. They're the first English club to do so, not invest anything. Yeah, absolutely, and and that has to be 
down to the objectives of, of the club and, and the owner and, and the manager and what they want to do. They are looking at that thinking we we are going to try and get the most out of these resources that we've got and we are not going to go into the transfer market. And that will be a, a clear decision because they've not bought anybody. So it has to be an objective that, that has been set by the club. I mean, if you see Arsenal moved to Emirates around in, I guess, 2005-2006. Yeah. But Arsene Wenger managed to keep Arsenal consistently in top four. Yeah. And also win a couple of FA Cups, Community Shields. Yeah. Do you think Pochettino is actually able to do that? Because he recently took a dig at Tottenham that there is no history of winning trophies. We see everything in black and white. Yeah, and I think that's the the kind of balance. And in, in, it is expensive to move stadiums, and the Arsenal example is is a clear case. There was a lot of debt that Arsenal took on to to pay off that stadium, to build it, to get in there, and it took them you know six, seven, eight years post being in that stadium to to clear the decks of of what that meant for them financially. It probably suggests then that actually you know Wenger was was doing a pretty good job with, again with the resources that he had at the time because they were consistently in the top four. They did win a couple of um, domestic trophies. You know, it, it's always we can play devil's advocate and we can say, well, if Tottenham did win the League Cup this season or they won the FA Cup, qualified for the top four, um, would the fans be satisfied with that? Maybe, maybe not. I, I think Champions League qualification is key. What what Tottenham absolutely have to do now is finish in that top four, and that's not easy because. Manchester United have uh, have come alive again under Solskjaer. Um, Chelsea, Arsenal will be thereabouts. So you know, Spurs. It's really important for them to stay in that top four this season. Now let us talk about the inflated transfer market a bit. Do you think like people should hold clubs like PSG, Barcelona, and Manchester City accountable for inflating the transfer market because PSG spent two twenty two million on Neymar. Barcelona spent about 250 million on Dembélé and Coutinho and Manchester City spent the GDP of a small country on buying defenders. So what do you think about that? I I don't think I don't think they can be held to account. I don't think um a- anybody can and and it's because of, you know, obviously there's when you compare some of the the figures and and I know the Manchester City example was the one that did the rounds in the media in the summer that you've just mentioned. It is fascinating for context, but you know that's the industry at the minute. The money is in football. Um, there is money in football, rather. There is a lot of money in football, primarily due to high broadcasting fees. Then we've got high commercial deals that are being signed off the back of it. It's a global sport that has a global reach. Um, and and you know I think the, the Neymar deal was was really interesting because. I don't think Barcelona, and I, I still stand by this, nobody, Barcelona did not expect that release clause to be met by any club. So that was a bit of an anomaly because they set that release clause and PSG went, OK, we'll meet it. Uh, and then what do you do? The player wants to go, the release clause has been met. In Spain, once a, a release clause is met, the player is is has the right to speak to that club and the transfer can take place. So... I think Barcelona were, were probably a little bit shell shocked by that. Uh, we've since seen, as you say, the the problem with the problem with with the fee, if anything, is it's just benchmarks in general. Once the benchmark is there, what do other people try and do? Is to hit that benchmark or beat it. So we've seen some some big fees. You know, had Neymar not have gone to for that amount of money, would Mbappe have cost that much? Would Coutinho have cost that much? Would Dembele have cost that much? 
Probably not, but but that's the benchmark and that's where it was at. Um, I think what it did do is, and, and I've said this before on record, is is inflate the the middle the middle of the market. So you know you have players that would have probably been worth twenty twenty five million were then going for fifty or sixty or seventy million. So it probably inflated the middle range more than anything. But so you know it's a case of a transaction in open market. What is somebody prepared to to pay? And PSG were prepared to pay it, so nothing we could do on that one. I mean, should you think like caps on buyout clauses will be introduced by FIFA or UEFA to actually monitor the market for the financial fair play sake? But it's potentially something they could look at. The, the counter argument is: Do they need to? Because now the clubs will do it themselves. So if you know when Barcelona renegotiated. Messi's contract, the release clause, I think, is something around 700 million euros. I think I might have got the figure wrong. Um, but So clubs will now do it themselves because they don't want to see, if they want to keep hold of that star player, You, uh, if you are that scared of losing him, then you would just set the release clause unrealistically high so that no club would ever get near it. I mean, but is is it right? Like, is it ethically right? That's a really interesting question. I, I suppose it depends on on your own personal moral judgment. I think some people will say it's not right, but you know, take Messi as an example. Barcelona fans will be saying yes, that's right because we don't want to lose that player. So no, you're not having him at any cost. It would depend on the person, the club they support, and their own moral judgment. I suppose. I mean, like I know Messi would never want to move out of Barcelona, and but... that as well, yeah. Suppose a player who wants to move out of Barcelona has got a release clause of, you say, 700 million euros. Yeah. But Barcelona is not... not yeah, like it's a fair question. And I suppose, you know, it it might come down to that at certain points. You might have to look at what's best for the player, what's best for the club. And, and I would say nine times out of ten, some deal would, would be... Um, you would be able to come to some deal. I think it's very rare. It does happen, don't get me wrong. But it's very rare where you see lots and lots of players frozen out and told they're not being moved, but they're not playing. It does happen, but it's it's they are those instances of a few and far between. So I think at some point, you know, common sense would would prevail. And if a player wants to go and and the money's right and the two clubs can do a deal, more often than not, you would see that deal go through. Let us have a chat about the Indian market now. Now you are testing my expertise. Yeah. So, recently it emerged that Mohan Bagan Football Club, which is the oldest existing football club in India, they are registered as a private limited football club and not a public limited football club. But they existed for like over 100 years, like 120 years to be exact, in 2019. How is it possible for a club to operate 120 years without owning their own logo and brand name? And if that has actually happened... Do you think at any point in this 120 years, an external individual or a company came, hold the club to ransom and copyrighted the brand and the logo and extorted money out of them? Uh, It's really difficult to answer the the final part of that question, as I say, because I don't know the club inside out and and I don't know the the political situation. I suppose in terms of what we're talking about from a a company point of view, if we can look at some of the, the potential issues there... The difference between a private limited company and a public limited company is, you know, one is is private and is owned by a um, 
a limited number of individuals. There is a limit to the amount of people you can have on the board of directors. There is a limit to the amount of people you can have making decisions. So it kind of um, it reduces the number of people needed to make a decision. In a public limited company, there is the option for um, investors, shareholders to sit on the board. There's the option for fans to get involved a little bit with, with the club and the way it's run. You could make offers to go out for, for share issues. You could get the public to invest in the club. It's kind of keeping the fans involved from a uh, from a, a company perspective that they can still have some input into that club. And there's a, there's no limit on the amount of members that you can have on the board in a public limited company. So that's the kind of regulations around it and, and the law-based stuff around those companies. So I suppose if you look at that club, it would depend on, and again, you might know this better than me, what are the objectives of the owners? What are they trying to do? Are they trying to... Um, are they trying to keep the clubs for themselves and, and make a profit out of it in the long run? Or are they looking at it thinking they can grow the club commercially and make the club better on the pitch and they can do that better by being a private company? I'll give you a bit of perspective into that so you can answer the question a little better with your knowledge. So back in 2012, Mohan Bagan actually had a sponsor in the United Breweries Group, which is a beer company. In 2012-13, they left, and the president, with the, the president of the club, he he says like, I sponsored the money out of my own pocket. Yeah. But, which I am not led to believe that because since it is a private limited company, I am led to believe that he surely got something out of the club because that is what you do with this, and that is the you can say the thumb rule of sports economics. Yeah, absolutely. It it does give you the option to do that. Um. But not everybody does that. So you can in a private company and, and a football club, if it's privately owned, you, you could, the owners could pay themselves dividends or wages, call it what, whatever you want. They could pay themselves money out of that. They could take money out of the business. Um, but there are lots of examples. And, and don't get me wrong, lots of clubs have, have over the last 10, 15 years, maybe 20 years across Europe um, have moved to a more private model of ownership. That doesn't necessarily mean that owners are taking money out of the club. It sometimes means that owners are putting money in and are not getting any return on the investment. Uh, you know, take somebody like Abramovich at Chelsea. All right, the numbers are much higher, but at no point has he ever taken money out for his own personal gain of, of Chelsea. Uh, so it's it's not an unusual situation. If the, the thing, I suppose what is an interesting talking point and and certainly you know you mentioned to me beforehand about some of the fan protests around this what upsets the fans is if they think the owners are taking money out of the football club for their own pocket because the, the way in which football clubs were developed was was around the fans and the fans run the club historically and yes we've moved into a more commercial marketplace for football to to grow commercially a private model of ownership often fits better but if those owners are then perceived to be taking money out for their own gain that inevitably will upset the fan base i mean like the fans protested they started making banners and stuff like what happens in european clubs like if you don't like the management you protest like it happened with arsenal wenger out kroenke out yep so what the owners did was like they banned the fans from taking any sort of banners or anything inside the stadium which shows like they are trying to implement a model of dictatorship or autocracy yeah. Yeah. which doesn't feel right because football is again based around the fans 
Yeah, well, you've you've hit the nail on the head there with with your wording to the fans. That doesn't feel right, and it and it's not in the fans' eyes. It's not the right way to run that club, which is is their club to some extent. You know, we have a real emotional attachment to our football clubs that we support. So that's when it it can turn the fans against the owners. Is is instances where you get protests like that, and then um, that the owners are trying to then shut those protests down. And you know you can't stop it. The fans will have a voice because they are a big movement in terms of number of people. They will always be much bigger than whatever ownership structure is in place at the club. Um, I, I suppose that an, a really important point to make in in line with this is at some point what you don't want this to do is to really have an impact on the pitch because the on pitch performance is is what drives that you know everything moving forward, revenue growth. Talking financial terms, talking sporting terms, it doesn't matter. You have to get that right on the pitch at some point. And if the owner tensions and the fan tensions are having an impact on that, then that's when it could become a real problem moving forward. Has anything ever happened like that in European football? Like probably the Glazers, maybe. Yeah, you you mentioned. I think in terms of fan protests, yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah. Um, in terms of different circumstances at different clubs. The Glazers were an example, a different example in English football in terms of a model to buy the club, which upset the Manchester United fans. What what the Glazers basically did was to to fund that purchase of the club through something called debt finance, which basically meant they borrowed money to buy the club and then they charged the club the interest on the borrowing. So you have a situation at Manchester United where, um, particularly in the early stages and still to some extent now, whereby the club are being charged interest on loans that were taken out by the Glazers to buy the club, which again, for some fans, doesn't seem right. As a business model, it, it's normal. It would happen in business. Debt finance is a method, um, and quite a useful method, dependent on the the size of the business and the potential of the business moving forward, of which Manchester United had massive potential in 2005, still has massive potential now. Uh, you know the market value is about 1.3 billion for the club so not a particularly bad investment by the glazers it's just because it's football and because it it's a different environment where you have to deal with the fans that the fans get upset but yeah it, as a business model it's not always a bad thing you have to just manage those expectations and and be transparent with the fans as well i think is important let them know what's happening and and try and get them to be a part of it rather than battling against them thank you dan for your time it no was problem. nice recording with you yeah enjoyed that thank you very much thank you